Hi, and welcome to the Willow Ridge Church Weekly Podcast. This is where you can find audio for our current and past sermons. We hope that you enjoy this week's installment, and be sure to check back next week to hear the latest message. Thanks for listening. tons of good stuff going on. So one of those good things that's going on is we're here together this morning. The Lord has us up, alive. It is cool out there. Joel's right. It's tempting. It's tempting not to be in here when it feels like that out there. I get it. But the Lord has us here. I'm grateful to be here with you as a church family. I'm grateful to continue in James. The past couple weeks, we've looked at how we will face trials. That's a certainty. If you're a believing person, just mark it. Put it on the calendar. Every day, there's going to be a trial and there's going to be perennial temptation. You're always going to deal with that. So my question, my gut reaction to that is, am I ready for that? Now, I don't mean some sweet Sunday school answer. I mean, am I actually ready for that? Am I ready to face tests consistently? Severe trials that cost the life of friends, that cost relationships, that bring uncertainty. Am I ready to face constant temptation. Every ploy by the enemy that wants to wreck me sideways this way and that. Am I ready for that? Well, I, I hope we're ready for that. And I think the book of James is written to make us ready. But I'd be careful about my response and your response to that question as to why you're ready. What makes you confident that you're ready? The most common answer I hear, because again, he's writing to believing people, Christians, is why, man, I'm I'm in church every Sunday listening to the Bible. I'm, I'm studying the Bible every day for myself, every day, man. I'm listening to podcasts on the way, on the way back from work. I'm reading books that are steeped in theology and when they're helping give me strength and a spine to approach these things. And James actually would give a different answer than that if you really want to be ready for tests and temptations. He actually says in verse 22, and that's going to be kind of the key feature of 19 through 27, which is where we're going to be in chapter 1 today. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. He basically says if your response to why you're ready for trials and temptations is that you study the Bible with deep devotion, that's an incomplete response. That's not adequate. He actually says you're kidding yourself. You want to dress that up, make it more formal? You're self-deceived. You think that showing up at church and hearing preaching alone, that studying the Bible on your own alone, That being devoted to theological propriety alone makes you ready. And he's saying you're not ready. Because more generally, his plea with us is actually follow Jesus. And some of the most disobedient moments in our lives, if we're honest, have been sitting in this room doing what we're doing right now. The most disobedient moments are then. Because we hear the word only 
And we have no intention of acting on it. None. We think it's right. We would tell our coworkers it's right. We would believe it's true as opposed to untruth. We're not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to align my life with it, especially if it's inconvenient or I don't happen to like what it says. Anytime I'm challenged or confronted, it isn't neatly fit. i got enough stress going on in my life. Why would I want to align myself with that word unless, unless I believe that's its purpose? I believe that the purpose of God's word to me is to portray who he is. So I can be who I'm supposed to be by faith in him. So James is going to help us understand how how do we become hearers and doers of the word of God? And I want to make something really clear because I know we have to hop in and out of the service sometimes. People have to go get their kids. So I want to say it at the front end and say it several times throughout. Here's what I want to say. Anybody who very wrongly says to you what this passage teaches is, we just need to be about doing, not all that learning, not all that hearing the Bible. You spend too much time with your nose in the Bible. That is absolutely not what he's saying. You can't get that out of this passage if you squeezed it in there and tried to pull it out. That's just not going to work. He actually is saying quite the opposite. You don't need less time in the Word. You need more obedience as a result. That's what I need. And that's what you need. That's what anyone who follows Jesus needs. So how would we do that? How would we actually become people that that do intensely hear the word? We want to hear it. We're starved for it. We need it because we want to actually do something about it. Look at verses 19 through 21 with me. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. My question here really is, how can we be this type of person? That hears and acts in genuineness and sincerity, a man with hot devotion. And the way he starts to frame this is pretty simple. You gotta plead with God to make your gut reaction different. Like, I, I don't know all of you. I know many of you, but I don't know all of you. But this is gonna get eerie real quick because James is reading our mail, all of us, mine too. And he's basically saying, you think about how you're challenged and confronted with something. Just think for a minute. Not how you want to dress it up when you're in small group and act like it's different. I mean how you actually respond, okay? If you're being honest with yourself, it's something probably how I respond. You challenge and confront me with something that's true, and I immediately have an emotive response. And if I don't like it, I'm upset. I could even get angry. And my next step after that is to defend, deflect, say something, tweet something, text something, email something. Which, by the way, when he's talking about speech in the digital age, yes, your social media isn't off limits from where God's going to grab a hold of it and throw it in the trash if that's where it needs to go. So my response usually when you confront me and I don't like it is in a fleshly way, I get upset. 
And then I say something to you that communicates, I'm upset, I don't like this. And then if I'm having a really great day and things are magical and I'm feeling really good about everything, I might get around to listening to you. Maybe, maybe. But that's a long shot when I'm frustrated and self-protective and don't wanna give in to what's true and what's right. And isn't it eerie that if you're anything like me, the exact opposite order is what James says we need to do. You actually need to be quick to listen. That needs to be anxious in you, urgent. I gotta hear the truth. I want it. I'm gonna get in this and anybody who's associated and aligns themselves with this and speaks that truth to me, I gotta have that. And I wanna listen, not just hear the words, but actually internalize, I wanna hear that. And you know the next thing I wanna do? I wanna shut my mouth. which is hard for some of us. I confess that right now, it's hard. I should be quiet. And I should be humble and teachable and listen to the truth. And then I have to be very slow to get angry as I internalize the truth. I can't get upset about it. I've got to know this is for my good and mercy. Now he's making a general statement here. But I think he also wants us to specifically apply it to being hearers of the word and doers. Because here's what your anger will do. It will never produce virtue and righteousness in your life. I am not saying that angry lacks virtue all the time. Sometimes angry may be right. I am just telling you that biblically, because people want to bring up Jesus' cleansing of the temple, for example. Do I think that was an expression of anger? Well, you, it may have been. But it was also determined action by one who never sinned. He visited the setting the night before and came back to visit the wrath on it. He didn't flippantly fly off the handle because he was ticked off because he got sideways with them. So, I mean, if your anger is that devoted, if your anger is that process, if it's that directed that you seek virtue as an outcome, then it's righteous anger. But everything else is sin. And particularly, he's addressing sinful anger, which is the vast majority of what we express. And he's saying, that's never going to produce what you think it's going to produce. It's never going to bring the good that you think it's going to bring. It actually makes everything malfunction instead of everything function and hit on all cylinders so you can hear and act in a way that brings glory to God and brings joy to your own soul. So how do we get there, James? I don't, I don't want to keep functioning like that. I don't want to do that. It's a way to get there. How do we become like this? That's the next part of what he says. You've got to put away all filthiness. i never forget, I worked with a guy, and his primary job was plumbing. And we had a late afternoon meeting. He'd been working in the trenches on sewer lines all day, and he thought it would be real funny <clears throat> to show up to the meeting without showering. Some of, you know, you're, some of you are having flashbacks right now. You're like, I've done that or I've been around people that do that. And they're like, he didn't swing by the house intentionally because they thought it'd be real cute to show up. He, he walked into the area we were meeting and gave me a big hug. And you talk about someone to induce vomiting. I mean, I was like, Van, I'm gonna puke on you uh, if you don't get out of my face right now. I'm like, man, change that stuff. That's the image that James has. Put away, take off clothing was the most common way this was used. Wear that stuff. You don't dress like someone, figuratively speaking, meaning you don't act 
You don't portray yourself. You don't have a heart that's prone toward evil and degradation and filth. You just don't want poorness and evil for people. You don't want it for yourself, and that's evident in you. So you got to put that away. Well, that's doing, right? But where's the hearing dimension? And, and here's the key statement. Instead of acting like that, instead of outwardly portraying what could be evil resident in our heart, instead of doing that, why don't you receive this implanted word that can save your souls? Now, that phrase is super interesting, implanted word. You're like, no, that's nerdy. I don't, it's not interested in me at all. It's like two words. Why is that interesting? Because now we're forced to do what we ought to do every single time we come to the Bible. Let's ask the question, what does that have to do with the entire Bible? So let's talk about the entire Bible just for a minute. I didn't say cover the entire Bible. I said talk about it, all right? Because that's necessary to understand this. If we think about hearing what God says and acting on it, we can go all the way back to the outset of Scripture. When God speaks, that activity creates all reality for us. He speaks it into existence. He speaks man and woman into existence once he has his place fashioned and he puts them there. And he speaks covenant faithfulness to them. You will dwell with me. You will reign over this garden with me. You will tend it and care for it and everything. You have dominion. And what I'm telling you is don't eat of the fruit of this tree because in the day you do it, you will surely die. That was his word to them. Did they hear it? Absolutely. Did they do it? Painfully no. They did not. And on behalf of all of us that would follow and be born generation after generation, we deal with the horrible consequences of that. You want to know why your kids are frustrated with you? You want to know why you're frustrated with your kids? You want to know why you and your spouse can't completely and perfectly get along? And list any other point of pain you have in your life? It all comes from that moment. That sin entered the world through a deceptive word. He surely didn't tell you that. He didn't tell you not to eat it that you're going to die. That's absurd. Everything else with power and truth he had said exactly came to pass. Why in the world would they doubt that this would be true too? But they did. And so they ate of it, and their eyes were open, and they realized that they had sinned. They realized that they had broke the covenant, that they had fractured the relationship that they had with God. And God, in his mercy, immediately visits them and gives them a covenant promise. You have been utterly unfaithful to me, utterly unfaithful. And I will be faithful in an unthinkable way to you. There's someone going to come eventually. Generation after generation, you're going to anticipate, he's going to come, he's going to come, he's going to come. And you're going to wonder, is he even going to show up? But he's going to come. And when he shows up, he's not going to do what this first Adam did. He's going to be a better second Adam. And when he comes, this deceiver that did this to you, like he's going to think he's won because he's going to attack him. But at the end of the day, he's going to crush his head. This deceiver's got no chance in the end even though he thinks that he wins battles here and wins battles there. And so the remainder of the Old Testament 
is covenant after covenant. Abraham, Moses, David, to highlight a few. And through all of those, God raises up his covenant people and continues to say, I'm your God and you're my people. I'm faithful to you. Even though, and he uses the term, like you play in the whore a lot. You're not being faithful to me. I don't change who I am. I'm God. I'm committed to you. So I will rescue you and punish you and restore you, but you will always be mine. And so prophets rise up and they speak the truth of the word. Priests uphold that and they make sacrifices so people know this sin stuff is nasty and heinous. Like something's got to die if this is going to get forgiven. And kings reign and rule and most of them are really horrible people. They're not examples you want to point to of leadership. I guarantee you that. Even David, a man after his own heart, has done one of the worst things committed in the Old Testament. So what do they all need? They still need the one that was promised in Genesis 3. All the leaders, all the kings, all the prophets, all the priests, all the people that can't get it right and aren't devoted fully, they still need the one who was promised. And John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there he is, Jesus. And Jesus comes and he lives a sinless life in one of the worst pressure cookers that the face of the world has ever seen and ultimately the worst at the point of the cross. And he bears in his body the wrath that I completely deserve for everything I have ever done or will do. And he grants me freedom and rescue if I will hope in him. Because three days later, he's resurrected from the dead. Forty days later, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father and sure to return. So that all of those who were saved, right, rescued, they believe and hope in him. They're going to ultimately be in a new creation. The new heaven and the new earth. And the reason they will be there is because of what he says in the upper room when he institutes the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. What do you mean by that, Jesus? It's not a new idea, even though it has new in the word. Jeremiah 31 actually says that God's going to make a new covenant when this Savior comes. And the strict dynamics of the covenant are really beautiful and compelling. Here's what that covenant looks like. You know how you trusted in the law, you believed the law, you did the word of God, right? I mean, that's what the law was to them. There's going to come a day I'm going to take that law with the rules and regulations and virtue that will guard your soul and make life beautiful for you, and I'm going to write them on your heart. I'm going to actually put them in you so that when you ask, should I file my taxes and be truthful? Should I honor my wife or look at porn? Should I be forthright with my friend or should I conceal because I actually want to look better when we're hanging out? That my truth would actually guide you because the Holy Spirit will take up residence and he will constantly remind you of that truth internally so it can make its way external. You can always hear it so that you can do it. The reason the implanted word is important is, 
it's got to be related to that promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, and that's all related to the entirety of the Bible. That is revolutionary compared to what most people think. I go study the Bible, I read the Bible, I listen to podcasts, I read theology books. But at the end of the day, man, I just got to figure this stuff out for myself. Well, no. No. For an unbelieving person, for someone outside of Christ, you haven't put your faith in Jesus, it feels that way to you. Because it is that way to you. It's all outside of you. And and praise be to God that you're here. Praise be to God that you want to hear the word, you want to be around it. But it's not the same thing as knowing Jesus. Being changed by who he is because he's the one who was promised in the garden that would be sent to rescue us. And being assured of your hope in him that will last for all eternity. That's what life abundantly means when Jesus makes that comment. So how do we become hearers and doers? We actually receive with meekness the implanted word. We we actually hunger for the word of God. And we respond to the Spirit's work that prompts us to actually obey it. And when we're tempted to not obey it, I would argue in a new covenant community, you notice there's more than one person that's a part of that. They should reach out to our brothers and sisters and say, I don't want to obey this. I'm just tell you straight up, like, I don't want to obey this. And they love us and they challenge us and confront us. And what do we do? We fight that urge and we trust the spirit of God's work to say, I'm going to be quick to listen. I don't want to listen to you, but I'm going to be quick to listen, right? I'm going to be slow to speak. I don't need to defend myself or deflect or shift. I'm going to be slow to get angry in this moment. I need this confrontation. It's good for my soul. Because I actually do want to hear the word of God and do it, not just pretend to and deceive myself. So receiving the word of God, being open to it, responding to the Spirit's word, that's the first element. The other question that I really ask is, okay, James, but I'm thick-headed. Like, I'm, I'm from Lexington, like most of y'all, and we can be a little stubborn, right, just culturally speaking. Like, I get, I get that. I am that, all right? I, I get it. So, like, can you show me a picture? Because implanted word, that still sounds pretty heady, and we just, good grief, we just covered the whole Bible. Like, good night. My head's been a little bit. Like, can you just, I'm a simpleton here, James. Like, show me. Portray what you're talking about, because I need an example But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once he forgets what he was like. This is the first of two very different people. So he's going to do exactly what I've asked him to. Show me an example. He's going to show me a non-example, this forgetful hearer. And a really good example of what it looks like to actually do this, receive the word and act on it. Well, this first guy is a little bit like one of my grandparents loved to say, you know, I I can only get so gussied up, right? Some of you still say that because it's like a hanger on from a bygone era. I kind of like the gussied up, right? Kind of want to, let's bring that back. Maybe we'll bring that back after this morning's sermon. I don't get so gussied up, but at the end of the day, I'm working with what I'm working with, right? It's like putting perfume on a hog. That was their phrase. They like, right? I mean, I, you know, I do so much with what I got, right? And I'm doing the best that I can do here. Some of you looking at me going, that's what you must have done this morning, because that's what you did when you looked in the mirror, right? Which we all did this morning, presumably. 
Every single one of us. And again, James is reading that mail on us. Not a one of us looked in our reflection there in the mirror. It told the truth, unless you got fun house mirrors in your house. And if you do, that's weird. Okay, let's have another conversation about that. That's a totally different matter. All right, but I'm assuming you have a standard mirror in your house. When you looked at it, nobody would walk away from that and not fix their hair or try to. Nobody would walk away and see, man, I got, my eyes are puffy. I got to deal with something here. Nobody would walk away from that and see, oh, my goodness, I, I look pale or I got too much sun or whatever. I got to do something. You ladies got all kinds of chemicals and like, there's vats and stuff in there. I don't even know what all that is. Like, I need some of that. I'm just not, I don't have a chemist degree to tr- work with this. So I can't do that. But anyway, you do all that and it's like, this is incredible. No one looks at what is undeniably telling you the truth about the situation who really wants to be different and then walks away and goes, I have no idea what that showed me and I don't plan to do anything about it. No person who's earnest about wanting to fix what's wrong, what's out of alignment, looks at that and does that. But how many times are we right now literally with the Bible open, looking at it, and we have zero intention to obey it. None. Every time we do that, it's like we looked in the mirror, turned around, like, I have no idea what it showed me, and I'm not going to look back because I don't care. Or maybe I'll look back next week, but I'm still not going to do anything about it. And I'll go week after week after week. And I'll look at it and look at it and look at it, but I don't do anything about it. I'm not going to act on it. How different is that person from the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Stark contrast in this joyful doer. Keep in mind, it's the same word in the metaphor. They're not looking at a different mirror. They don't have a funhouse mirror. It's the same mirror. It's the same truth. It's the same reflection of reality. The difference is the response. That's the difference. That's why I do think emphatically what I said at the outset is true. You can't tell in here the difference between someone who is going to act on this, even now is being stirred by God's spirit to act on this, and someone who's not. Because we all sitting here either swiping our Bible or turning the pages, whichever mode you use. We're all looking at the screen, right? And whatever it says. We all seem to be somewhat dialed in as much as we can be. Bleary eyes, caffeine on board, right? But we're trying. We're all trying in this room. The difference will be made in the balance of this week, in the balance of our life. Like what, what are we doing? What do we intend to do? And James' plea with us, with me and with you is, look at that mirror like your life depends on it. I mean consistently, aggressively look at it. Don't turn away from it. Look at it with expectation because you need to actually trust the Lord to fix what looks misaligned in that mirror. Because that mirror is telling you the truth. And you and I can be self-deceived enough to go, well, it's not totally the truth. Well, it's not that bad. I, mean, I know that God says that that form of 
sin is really vile and it's going to shipwreck my whole life. It's going to ruin my experience. Even if I am a believer, it's going to destroy my relationships. But at the end of the day, it's not that bad. I mean, relationships are hard. That's turning away from the mirror and forgetting what you look like, what you saw there. The interesting phrase he uses is this law, right? Appearing to the law. And we're kind of back to what I said about implanted word. Now, the law, certainly for James, would have included the Torah, all right? So the idea was the rules, regulations in the first five books of the Bible. That certainly he would have had that in mind. But that can't be all he has in mind. He has something actually much greater in mind. Here's why I say that. Earlier in chapter 1, he's already called it the word of truth. He's used the word twice in this text already. He's clearly making the law synonymous with the word. Well, guess what the word is? It's everything that God has given his covenant people in the Old Testament, in James' writing at this point. And everything that Jesus has done to interpret it, expand it, and fulfill it. That's what he's talking about. So if we go back to our quick like, fly over the Bible from a few moments ago, Jesus is the one that was promised to do what? Be a burden to you? He was supposed to come and do what? Give me eight easy rules to follow tomorrow so I can be a good person on my own. He came to rescue you from death and hell, which you were certainly headed toward, and if you were outside of Christ, you are still headed there. That's what he came to do. So that's why the law is a law of liberty. A law in this sense is meant to provide absolute freedom because it's the word of the one who's faithful to you to sustain your life and save it for all eternity. That's what he intends because he loves you and cares for you. His word is not a burden. It's the guidance for life. If you and I think that applying it is a burden or an inconvenience or just a downright pain in the rear end, that's on you or me. It's not on God. That's your problem. It's my problem. It is never his because he doesn't have a problem. You're not an inconvenience to him to the tune of the blood of his own son. He shed his blood to secure your life and mine if we will hope in Jesus. How dare we point the finger at him and say, do you really care about me? Do you really love me? You really want what's good for me when I'm reading these verses? Without hesitation, every time the answer is yes. Even though it's hard sometimes, and it is. Even though it's difficult to internalize and take, he wants us to stare into this law and recognize the liberty that's there. And again, I, I think this is going back to Jeremiah 31, but there's, there's a third question I think we need to cover. How would we know if we're doing this? Like, I think he's told us how to do it. Receive with meekness, like be humble, actually be expectant. I want to hear the word and I want to act on it, so I'm motivated to do it. But at the end of the day, like, how do I take the test? Like, how, how do I know? Because I'd like to know before I confront massive trials in life. I'd like to know before I face the day's temptation. Like, how would we know if we were doing this? And so I, I think he gives us a handful of tests. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious 
and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He tries to help us understand what it would look like to be faithful. What would it actually look like for us to be hearers of the word and expectancy and doers actively? What would that look like? And I want to be really clear. The tests he's going to give us, there are three. They're not exhaustive or comprehensive. Some people talk about this passage and they go, that's the totality of the Christian life is to do these three things. That's not what James is saying. But let this get in our business a little bit. He's simply saying without these three things, you definitely don't have the Christian faith. Well, it doesn't mean you don't believe in Jesus. It just means you're not being faithful to what it would look like to be a disciple if you're not doing some measure or brand of these things. They're irreducible in that way. Like, this has got to be there. And they're broader than what he says, but I'll try to comment on that for you a little bit. I think the first question to ask, if we're going to apply that there, do we speak like renewed people? And let me cut something off at the past. This is not, do you cuss less than everybody else around you? Okay, that's like the most diminutive way we could read this, all right? Should you be a person that just like wallows in profanity? I just think that sounds ignorant and undignified. And I'd probably say that to you if I wasn't a believing person. So I mean, it's just like, it doesn't, it just sounds immature. Now you're going to push back some of you and go, well, that's not bad. Like it's, it's just words. Okay. If I had your four-year-old stand up right now and drop a bomb right here, would it just be a word? Why are we uneasy with that all of a sudden? It's just a word. You teach them all kinds of words, right? Because they learn that in your house. Is that bad? This isn't about cussing. Again, that's the easiest way to read this. But I think that's probably in view. Why? Because of the deeper issue here. Do your words reflect that your hope is in Christ and you want dignity for yourself and virtue for yourself and everyone around you who contacts you? Is that what you want? Okay, well then the way we speak to and about people, it absolutely matters. Absolutely. How you speak about people when they're not in the room, are they safe with you when they're not with you? Are you looking to kind of edge out somebody, kind of chip away at their reputation? Because that's fun and it endears you to this other person that you want to be cool with. I'm talking to every age group, but you and I both know whether you're in it now or you're in it at some point. Middle school and high school, like that's a constant temptation. I can make myself look a little bit better. Like we all jeer each other anyway. And guys give each other a hard time. I get that. All right. That's not what I'm talking about. But are they safe around you? Do you speak in such a way that's honest and has integrity? If God speaks truth, and that's his character, his people are intended to reflect truth. Jesus actually says from out of the heart, there's overflow to your mouth, Matthew 12. So whatever's in the well is what comes up when you pull the bucket up. So here's the severe question, like, what do you really like on the inside? Well, how you talk tells us what you're really like on the inside. Jesus is very clear about that. So what what do you say? What do you withhold? What do you make sure you say well in a caring way? What do you say directly because it aligns with truth? The second question is, do we care for helpless people? Again, portraying the character of God, he is emphatic in Psalm 68. He's a father to the fatherless. That's meant to be, again, a more general statement of, yes, caring for orphans. 
but it really is to undercut any notion that you and I as believing people should not care for people who are helpless to care for themselves. This is why I care for the preborn in the womb and care for those who have been born and those who are suffering from dementia and are about to die. That caring for the whole span of life for those who can't care for themselves is never a question of if but how for believing people. Never a question of if but how. So how are we caring for widows and orphans, those who are mentally and physically challenged? How are we caring for those who are without income? How are we caring for those who can't seem to socially connect with people? How are we doing for them? And thirdly, do we live like reconciled people? But how do we stay unstained from the world? What does he even mean by that? It's pretty clear what he means. What he means is not that you are in the world and ignore the world. Jesus pretty emphatically says you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're not to turn your back on your neighbor who hates Jesus. Very much the opposite. You're not to be unfeeling to tribal peoples at the other side of the planet who have no access to the gospel because they're not American. There's no quarter for that kind of nonsense. That's not going to work. The only people who discredit, devalue, don't care about, and think you can treat human beings however you want, are people who don't know Jesus. Because Jesus has brought in the most vile people ever at the expense of his own blood. And guess who those people were? I'm in the front of the line. What he means here is you cannot allow worldly notions of truth, reality, advancement, work, fill in the blank, to guide what you do toward other people. Because it will disallow your hearing and doing of the word. Rwanda is one of the most special places in the world to me, not because I've spent tons of time there, but I spent several weeks there in April several years ago. And April is a dark month in Rwanda. April 94, what I remember about that is Kurt Cobain committed suicide. And that's all I remember from that time. And that was a horrible story and a horrible circumstance. It was much more difficult, the Rwandan genocide. Beginning in early April and running 100 days, an estimated half a million Rwandans were killed by their own neighbors and government officials. Why? Because they had systematically communicated among the primary ethnicity, these people are cockroaches, these people need to be exterminated, these people will overtake us, these people will malign us. And they cultivated that through what they said and communicated and broadcasted. And they made sure to systematically set up a time and they carried out the mass slaughter of their own neighbors to the tune of at times banging on the gate next door. When they came to the door, they had a machete in hand and they met the end of their life because they answered the gate. Your own neighbor that you lived next to for 20 years. I never forget going to those memorial sites and culturally that contrast couldn't be more stark. See, we memorialize through stone and marble with names etched, right? You go to those sites like one I visited where they ran all the kids from the schoolhouse into this one building 
They threw grenades in, Molotov cocktails, blew up what they could when they would run back out. They would fire at them with machine guns. They'd run them back in. They'd repeat the process until they were all dead. They literally just formed scaffolding and put rows of skulls and femur bones in there. That's the memorial. So you walk in, and there's still ash and broken bone on the floor, and you got skulls in front of you. Little skulls. Children. Incredibly horrifying, not the most haunting thing I heard while I was there. This is it. Sat across at lunch from a pastor, and he said, you got to understand, man, we've heard the Bible our whole life. We believe it, and we can still justify that genocide. We can still tell you why it was the right thing to do. That's one of the most evil things I've ever heard. You talk about a chill down your spine, like that scared me to death. So you, you've seen this, you've read it, you've heard it. Good grief, you teach it, man. But it has no effect on what you believe to be true and right about God or other human beings at the end of the day. And you didn't even bat an eye at telling me that. Because he thinks somehow that hearing can be disconnected from doing. And so this is a haunting moment for us too, isn't it? Because we're hearing. We're hearing right now. We've been hearing right now. We continue to hear anytime we read the word. But I, I think the question that we have to ask is, what are we going to do? So I, I, think I need to pray to the Lord. I ask you to pray with me that he would call us to be hearers and doers of the word. And in all these ways that he's outlined, we'd celebrate the fact that in Christ we can do that by the power of the Spirit. So let's pray together. God, we do thank you that you are ever faithful to us. We thank you that you... Don't leave us, uh, even though we are certainly disobedient, God. We're confused. Uh, we don't know what to do, and even times when we know what to do, we just choose not to do it, Lord. We are resistant and rebellious at points, and we need you, Lord, just to care for us. We need you by your spirit to sustain us. Thank you that you preserve our souls and you save us, God, by faith in Jesus. So I would pray, God, that you would... Make us as a church, make us as individual men, women, and children who are believing in Jesus to aggressively desire to read and take in your word. Thank you that you have implanted it. You've written it on our hearts, and I pray that by the Spirit's work, you would call us to obedience. So whatever that means for us in these moments, in this day, in the balance of our life, God, I would pray by the work of your Spirit for the glory of your name. That if we are anything, we are hearers and doers of your word because we are gloriously joyful that Jesus is our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Willow Ridge Church weekly podcast. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this week's message. If you'd like to learn more about who we are or explore additional resources, visit us online at www.willowridgechurch.com or by searching for Willow Ridge Church on Facebook and Instagram.